Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malaman. I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. The wonderful American writer Richard Ford opens his poignant tale of family breakdown entitled Great Falls in this way. This is not a happy story. I warn you. I'm Elliot Malamud, and in this episode of Crossing the Sea, a monthly podcast about mental health, we hear news from the battleground of alcoholism and addiction from two people well-suited to address the topic. David Kaufman is an addiction counselor in Toronto, working with JACS, short for Jewish Addiction Community Services. For many years, David has been treating Jewish addicts of all backgrounds and affiliations, while simultaneously encountering denial that such a problem even exists in Jewish communities. He says that situation is changing as more and more people become aware of addicts in their families and in their synagogues and their neighborhoods, largely because of the kind of work that David and others do in this field. For the podcast, which we taped in March 2020, just as a different pandemic was taking hold, David brought along one of his clients, Randy Eckler to testify to the hurricane that had uprooted and destroyed much of his life since adolescence as a result of addiction. Randy, who is now in his 60s, is able to simply and painfully articulate his story, which is not a happy one, I warn you, but it is one to which we should all pay very close attention. Okay, so welcome to a really special Living Jewishly podcast. We're talking tonight about Judaism and addiction, and we're really thrilled to be joined by David Kaufman, who I'm not going to give much of an introduction to because he's going to tell you what he does, but for a long time, David has been on the front line of dealing with this topic of Jews or addicts. And I guess I want to start there with you, David. It's been a stereotype for a really long time that somehow Jews don't drink and don't do drugs, and the stereotype still exists although it's being challenged, I, I want you to tell me why you think this idea exists, this kind of myth exists in Jewish communities, that somehow Jews are immune to this kind of behavior. And I'm assuming from your personal experience that you can sort of testify to how wrong-headed that assumption really is. And so I, I don't know I don't know what the past was. So there, Barbara Tuckman wrote a book years ago and about the Jewish communities, and she does mention that Jews, it was very rare for Jews to be alcoholics. I don't know what was the cause of that? And she talks about the fact that it was used only in, in ceremonial purposes. I guess they didn't have kiddish clubs back then. But today, clearly, that's not what's happening. I, I would even say, and the change has gone on in the last 10, 15 years. When I first started working for JACS, uh, Jewish Addiction Community Services, I would go out to, to lay leaders and, and rabbis in the community, and I would say to them, you know, we're dealing with addiction, pornography addiction, gambling addiction, alcoholism, marijuana addiction, and everything there is in between. And it was not uncommon at the time for somebody to say to me, well, we don't have that problem in our shul. I was going to say, really, actually, I'm here because I know you do have this problem in your shul. Nobody says that to me anymore. There's so been they, a real switch. They they bought into the fact. Yes. Because right? I think when they said that to you, you were actually treating people at that time who were congregational members right. in a synagogue 
that the rabbi denied that there was any problem then. Yeah. Right. So they've they've at least made that step that they're they're hip to the fact that this is going on regularly. Hundred percent. So what I hear you saying is that this kind of mythology is changing. It's it's an evolution that we know now that we have this problem. What do you see in your work as the root issues in, in addiction? Is it genetic? Is it environmental? The way you're parented? You friendship circle? Need to escape all of the above? Everything. Everything. Yeah. We, we talk about this biopsychosocial, spiritual causes for addiction. The problem is if people have diabetes, nobody, nobody, there's no moral connection to that. If somebody has cancer, actually you get a lot of people really want to help out. But if somebody says you have a disease of addiction, Right. There's others like there's a stigma, a huge stigma attached. So it's really important to understand when we call addiction a disease, how it's a disease, why it's called a disease. So you're saying that if you get pancreatic <clears throat> cancer, nobody's blaming you morally. It's not your fault. It's like, in fact, we have sympathy for you. You had bad luck. Same thing with other diseases. But somehow there's a blame component, you're saying, in addiction. That even though it's an illness, it's like somehow you're, it's your fault that you're sick. Yeah. I mean, and, and you can understand why it seems that way because if you have, I mean, the symptoms of diabetes are frequent urination, cuts that don't heal, blurry vision. I mean, the symptoms are like that. The symptoms of addiction are bad behavior, lying, cheating, stealing, driving drunk. I mean, so it, it looks like, it looks like a disease that's, that not really a disease. It's a bad choice. This person's doing bad things in society. And so we, we have a really negative response to it. I'm interested in the line then. You're, you're talking about a very tricky line between self-responsibility and stuff out of your control. So partly when you started talking, you're talking about like a genetic loading where you're kind of up against it from the get-go. And so partly it's not your fault because there's so much in your sort of genetic markers that are like leaning you that way. But on the other hand, you're also talking about, and in your work, I'm sure you're talking about some kind of personal responsibility not to enable that person. So that, that's just a other thing. Right. So where does the, where does the balance run here? All right. So there's a law in California called the Watson's law. If you get arrested for drunk driving, they make you sign a, I don't know what the legal term is, is it a paper okay. that says, if in the future I am drunk, I'm drunk and I'm driving and I kill somebody, I will be charged with murder. But obviously there's no mens rea. When you, when you're driving and you're drunk, you did, there's no intention here, right? So how can they do that? So what the paper is really saying is we understand that that you didn't intend to kill somebody, but you took that first drink and you were responsible for taking that first drink when you knew that it could leave you, lead you, most likely for an addict, to the second, third, and driving. So you're, you're basically saying that even though there is a genetic load and even though there may be environmental factors and bad friends or whatever it is, that at some point we do hold that person culpable if we say... You have agency to some degree. Right. So if you know you have diabetes in the family, what it's saying is that there are things you can do to make sure that that, that gene is not expressed in your life. So you eat in a certain way, you exercise in a certain way to make sure it doesn't come forward. The same way with addiction. If there's addiction in the family, do the things that keep you from addiction. Let's stay with the issue of escape for a moment. Would you say that the key to recovery is maybe focusing less on the actual like drug taking? and more on the emotional issues that underlie the addiction? Yeah, it, it's not uncommon for somebody after a first session in my office to turn around at the door as they're leaving and say, hey, you know, we didn't speak about addiction a lot, about drugs a mm -hmm. lot. And I said, yeah, because drugs is not your problem. The, the, the drugs are your failed solution. Uh, you're using drugs to try to deal with something that you couldn't deal with. 
and it didn't work. So why are we going to spend time on it? Now, obviously, there's the addictive part of it. There's the body, the, the brain has gotten addicted and, and we have to teach them how to deal with it. But the first line, the first line is, is getting them a way of dealing with their urges and their triggers. And, and so they don't turn to their drugs for, as a solution. So to some extent, what you're talking about is not just drug addiction, it's being human. In other words, because every single human being that I know, including myself, has an urge to escape, right? Because we're all dealing with private pain. We're all dealing with like stuff. And so everybody has a way of kind of distracting themselves off of that pain. So it strikes me that drugs is just a sort of more toxic way to deal with it. Right. But, if you're the botany and you're planting. Yeah. Right. Right. So there's no really right. negative. Uh, right. 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 I, I did, we did a program, Jack's did a program at uh, Western University last year and uh, about 300 kids were there. And I got up and I said, how many of you are afraid of uh, rejection? Please raise your hand. 25, 30 kids raised their hand. And I said, the rest of you are all lying. And they all laughed. And I said, okay, how about fear of failure? How about fear of being out of control? How about fear of death? How about fear of pain? You know, and everyone's so laughing because that's the human condition. We, we all struggle with these things. The, the problem with addiction, and we'll really focus back onto the biology in a second because I think it's an important part. The, the, the problem with addiction is that we all have these voices. They're, you know, the internal dialogue. And we're not talking about schizophrenia. We're just talking about that, that fear of rejection, failure, and so on. With many times we discover with people it, it, with a substance use disorder, those voices are really loud and they're really powerful. And so one day, imagine you're 17, 16 years old, you light up that, that joint, you, you, you drink that alcohol, you inject whatever it is, and suddenly the voices turn down the volume and such, you or they're quiet. What a relief. And you want to tell them don't use again? Yeah, it'd be an enormous <laughs> It's a very difficult. Right. Yeah. I mean, because to you, it's like the, I've gotten immediate solution to this noise in my head. Right. Yeah, I could see it extremely enticing. Yeah. yeah. Not to generalize, David, but do you think addicts have a kind of common denominator in that they don't really take responsibility for their using? I think when when they're in active addiction, you're, you're right. There's, there's a lack of responsibility because the focus of when, when somebody's under the influence of, of a uh, mind-altering substance or behavior that is their their main love, their main purpose in life, which is getting their drug and getting high. And so, of course, again, the behavior of somebody under this disease is irresponsibility, if you want to call it that. So in a way, what you're doing is you're trying to convince them, you're trying to sell them down the idea that you've got something better for them than the thing that actually reduces the volume in their head. That's Isn't that a hard sell? Uh, well, ultimately, you know, people talk about the rock bottom. Do you need to hit rock bottom? Yeah. Sometimes definitely you do, but sometimes you can bring the bottom up. And you can say, look, the, the, this is what alcohol, this is what drugs, this is what gambling is doing to your life, right? Do you want something better? When the pain of using is more than the pain of not using, generally people stop using. That makes sense to me. We're going to bring in somebody who knows about both sides of this coin, which is a Randy Eckler, who's a recovering addict. I'd like you to talk a little bit, Randy, about when you began to use what, what you see in retrospect was going on for you at that time and what you see as the keys to your recovery. Thank you very much. I, I started using, I was 14 years old. I started with alcohol. I started with marijuana. And part of the problem was that everybody, including myself, was saying it's only marijuana. I never got into hard drugs and I fooled myself for years. I The reason I got into it was to be a crowd pleaser. And, and I had no confidence. I had no self-esteem. I didn't think I was good enough. I never, ever felt good enough. And it's not that marijuana and alcohol, it's not that it made me feel better. 
but it stopped me from feeling bad. It stopped me from feeling worse, and it covered my feelings. So the more things I did bad, and I've done a lot of things I'm not proud of, believe me, but the marijuana, more marijuana than alcohol. I stopped alcohol 17 years ago. I stopped marijuana three years ago, three and a half years ago. It's the best thing I ever did, but the, the reasons for doing it were, as I just stated, no confidence, no no self-esteem, not feeling good enough, not feeling that I had a place on earth. David spoke briefly about hitting rock bottom. I held, I, I hit rock bottom three times. I got, I got divorced three times. I always blame them. I never accepted blame. It's, it's her fault. It's her fault. It's her fault. Well, guess what? What's a common denominator in three failed marriages? It was me. So I had, I had to take a long, hard look at that. I, I, I had nothing to lose. I, I, I had lost it all. I have a son that's followed me into addiction. There's nothing that I could do to, to take anything back that I've done. All I could do is be a better person, be a better example. Three years ago, I met David in a, in a meeting at Jack's called Here to Hell. The reason, and that's for families of addicts and alcoholics. And the reason that I joined or started going to that meeting, I wanted to get in touch with the collateral damage of my own addiction. Exactly what have I done? Exactly who have I hurt? And you know what? Seeing these families that have been devastated by their addicts, I was crushed. I, I absolutely, I've never been suicidal, but I wanted to kill myself. I don't mean it literally. I just, I, I couldn't live with, with the damage that I've done. And, and I had two choices. Go on the way I am, wind up in jail, an institution, or death, or I can do something about it. I've continued going to that meeting to, to, to today. I still go to that meeting. I've joined Narcotics Anonymous. I go to, I go to about five meetings a week now. I, I sponsor three other addicts. I speak at synagogues. I speak at rehab centers. I tell my story as often as I can. The only addiction I have left right now is I'm still addicted to Facebook. And and you know what? I put it out there. I, I put my story out on Facebook because you know what? If I can spare one person, just one, then I've accomplished something. I don't want anybody to suffer the, the what I've done. I, I don't want anybody to follow my path into addiction, but I would I would love... For somebody to say, well, you know what? If he can do it, maybe I can do it too. And you know what? I, I, my two weeks ago, another young fellow, 21 years old, asked me to be a sponsor. Where did he meet me? In a rehab center that I was speaking at. When I look at these people, it's bizarre. The gift that I've been given in recovery. A year and a half ago, I had my second shoulder surgery and I can no longer be a, a, a plumber. I've been a plumber for over 40 years. So at that point, I could have, I could have turned to drugs again. I could have turned to my, my addiction. I could have hit in my hurt. But instead, what did I do? I, I delved deeper into recovery. I went into more meetings. And what happened? With the grace of God, I got offered a job teaching. If you would have told me four years ago before I got into recovery, I'm going to be a school teacher, I would have said either you're on drugs or you're crazy because there's no way. But you know what? Now I teach 17, 18, 19 year olds fresh out of high school. They have no idea where they're going. And, and I've been given the gift that one word from me, one push in the right direction, and I can lead them either way. And it's absolutely a gift. In recovery, I've met the most phenomenal woman in the world. On our very first day, I told her my story. I don't know why, but somehow I got the courage to tell this lady my entire story. I told her I'm an alcoholic. I told her I'm an addict. You know what her reaction was? When's the last time you had a drink? I said 17 years ago. When's the last time you did drugs? I said three years ago. And you know what she said to me? I don't want to be part of your past. I want to be part of your future. And we're still together seven months later. You know where I was before this podcast? I was at her grandson's birthday party playing with the little kids. If that's not a gift of recovery, I don't know what is. I have 
every reason to not use. I have I can't find one reason to use drugs again. I can't find one reason to use alcohol again. I'm sure I've had trials and tribulations along the way, but you know what? Every day that I wake up, I've got a conscious decision to make. Do I want to be a hopeless dope addict or do I want to be a dopeless hope addict? As long as I don't pick up, I have hope. Nobody can take hope away from me. Unless I fold it up, put it in a bag and give it to somebody, they can't take hope away from me. Every day when I wake up, I thank Hashem. I thank God for another chance. I thank Him for every day when I go to bed. I say, thank you for another clean day. When I wake up, I say, please, Hashem, give me one more day. I can't guarantee I'll be clean the rest of my life. But you know what? For today, I'm going to be clean. When I go to bed tonight, I know that I didn't do drugs today. I didn't drink alcohol today. And maybe, just maybe, I can reach out to one person. I have three people that I sponsor. They call me every single day. That's the one rule. They have to call me every day. We have to talk. I have to know how their day are. Day is, sorry. David got me into sponsoring. A year and a half ago, he kept on trying to get Randy sponsor. Randy sponsor. And I, and I wasn't ready. And I went, but you know what? He saw something in me and, and he wouldn't let go. And you know what? Now I realize what he saw because for the first time in my life, I can look in a mirror. For the first time, I can look in a mirror and not feel shame and not feel guilt. You know what? To me, addiction is, is, we're talking about it being an illness. To me, addiction is, is a cancer because I don't believe that cancer can be beaten and I don't believe addiction can be beaten, but it can be put into remission. I'll be an addict for the rest of my life. I'll be an alcoholic for the rest of my life. First of all, I'm glad to be an addict. I'm glad to be an alcoholic. Because of the position I'm in, I can help other people. And if I wasn't, then I wouldn't be in the position to help other people. And I'll, and, and, and you know what? It's a gift. It really, really, really is a gift. There's nothing I'd rather do. But I'm comfortable in the fact, like I said, that I'll be an addict the rest of my life. My, 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 the woman in my life, God bless her, she hates when I say that I'll be an addict the rest of my life. But you know, I will be. I'm not going to use drugs today. I hope I won't use it tomorrow. But will I always be an addict the rest of my life? Absolutely. Will I be an alcoholic the rest of my life? Absolutely. When a doctor stops practicing medicine, you still call him doctor. I'm an alcoholic that stopped drinking. I'm an addict that stopped doing drugs. I'm interested. Can you just answer me? Because it's not the way my mind works. So I'm really interested in how your mind works. So when you sit here and tomorrow or the day after that, do you worry? Do you have a fear like I could do that again? Or does it feel, does it feel distant or does it feel like really close to you? Like I could, I could fall tomorrow. Like what's the feeling for you? The feeling for me, because I'm working a 12 step program and I, I, and I, and I feel that I'm working my program properly because you can't just stop drugs. You can't just stop drinking. It's not that simple. What made me drink? What made me do drugs? Those are the things I need to work on. And as long as I'm working, we call them character defects. As long as I'm working on my character defects, and like it's like if I have a pain in my arm, I can put a Band-Aid on it. Maybe it'll go away, maybe it won't, or I can deal with what's giving me the pain. I have to deal with what's giving me the pain, and I do that on a daily basis. I share at meetings. I share openly at meetings. I cry like I'm a little baby. And you know what? I'm not ashamed to cry. I'm not ashamed to have feelings. David, Randy referred to thanking God and I know that in many addiction programs, starting with AA, there's this discussion of a surrender to a higher power as a kind of an important component of recovery. Can you tell me why that's important? And I'm thinking, like, what if you don't believe in God? There really is two types of surrender. There's a str- surrender, which is realizing there is a famous addictions counselor, Dr. Carnes, who wrote many uh, books on, on addiction and recovery. 
is especially famous in the world of uh, sexual addiction. Uh, he says the four steps that are required for the the person with a substance use disorder, an addict, or a family member. They have to go through these steps in that in this order. Otherwise, they're going to relapse. He says they are overcoming denial, education, plan of action, and self-care. Overcoming denial is that surrender part, that which is, I can't fix this because everything I've been doing up to now has been, <laughs> leads me where it is. And it's, it's a difficult part for people to do because parents, they're, they're, you're, they're dealing with their fears that their child's going to die or their child's, you know, it's out of control. So they have to overcome that denial and they have to overcome the denial that the fact they're enabling their, their, which they don't know about at the beginning that they're doing. The addict has to overcome the, the, the idea that they can ever use recreationally in a, in a Truth is, there are people who do use recreational again, but it's, it's risky. It's a, it's a very risky thing. The one of the founders of, of the harm reduction movement after seven years of sobriety found herself driving on a highway the wrong direction and killed somebody, unfortunately. Uh-huh. Right. So it's, it's definitely a risky thing, but uh, there are people who do that. Yeah. So, so definitely the surrender of that. You have the answer to this. Tell me what it is. So what you're saying is that the surrender part, what we call God in this paradigm is really starting with saying, I can't do this alone. I need something bigger than me. Starting with another human being, really. Right. And maybe, you know, sort of spreading outward from there. So we talk about, uh, in fact, the, the word God is often used as higher power. Right. Higher power can be whatever you want to call it, the force. I don't, karma, I, it makes no difference to us. What makes a difference is that it's not you. David, possibly one of the more painful parts of your work is that you meet regularly with parents of addicts. And I know that you're empathic to their pain. But I also know that you give them sort of messages about not being enablers of their children's addiction. And I want you to tell us, our audience, like the kinds of things you say to parents, sometimes the sort of denial that parents are in and how you graphically have to articulate to them your message. Right. 80% of the work I do is with parents. It's not uncommon for me to start my Monday morning with two parents sitting in my office crying. And I apologize as I start. I say I used to be a really warm and fuzzy therapist. But it doesn't work very well. I need to say it like it is. Are you okay with that? And generally they say yes. And it's difficult, right? Because parents are generally are enabling. Enabling can be seen as two ways. Enabling, the, the word technically means to give somebody the power or authority to do something. So what the parents are often doing is giving the, the child or the spouse, if, you know, if it's a spouse, the power to continue using, right? That can mean anything from financing them taking care of their of their legal issues. I mean, I can't tell you how many times somebody's called me up, parents, and said, my son got arrested for whatever offense. What should I do? They leave him in the jail. And they said, but what about kosher food? I said, let him eat pork. It doesn't matter. They have to feel that this has gotten them where they are today. And inevitably, it's very hard at the beginning. They'll bail the person out. I remember one mother told me, as they're walking out of the prison, or the whatever that institution was, the son turned to his mother and said, I wouldn't have made uh, that right-hand turn on, on the one-way street if I hadn't been told to by my friends. So as soon as they walked out the door, they were in denial about the right, responsibility. And the danger is that they're still enabling, and that kid's going to get back in a car because, of course, he didn't have a problem. Right? So you have to be in their face about it and say, listen, you, you, are, you are responsible partially for what's going on. We, t- we talk about the four Cs. It's important because it's, it's very hard for parents to get over their role in this process. So the four C's are, I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, I can't control it. And I didn't cause the addiction, I can't cure the addiction, and I can't control what the addict's doing. But I can contribute. I can contribute to their healing, or I can contribute to their continued self-destruction. So 
shortening the whole the, the topic because it's actually a long topic. We have to get to the parents to the point where they're no longer willing to participate in their child's self-destruction. So that would mean, I would imagine, something like if you want to live in my house, you've got to live by my rules. And if you break those rules, I'm locking you out. Like if it's I, essentially, you, there, so what we do is I, I do something we, we call the letter. If you come, we run a group every Thursday night at Jack's at 846 Shepherd Avenue West. And the group is for parents and spouses who have somebody they love struggling with addiction. And in that group, we often at some point will tell them they got to write this letter. And the letter has four parts. I love you. And they write about how they love their child, their spouse. This is what you would, this is what we see happen to you since you've been using your drug. Your life is falling apart, your health. We feel like we, what the next part is what, how it affects the family. We have to walk around eggshells on you. You're stealing, you're lying, you're cheating. And these are the new rules we're, we're putting in place. And the rules are depend. That's more specific, you know, what those rules may. It might be that there's a curfew or it might be that you cannot be high in the house or it might be that whatever the rules are. And many times it, it is, if you want to continue your lifestyle, that's great. Do it somewhere else on your own dime. So let me role play here for a second. Okay. So I'm the parent. You give this guy a tough love and you say, don't let him in, right? Keep right. him in jail. Don't let him in. So I'll, I'll play the devil's advocate. Are you crazy? Like you want my kid out there on the street with all of these like hoodlums and criminals and, and you know, my sweet little kid. It's true that he's a drug addict, but he's, he's not a bad guy and he's going to get in with the terrible people. And you're basically telling me to kick him out. So this is, this is part of the denial that goes on, which is that somehow if they're at home, they're safer. We've had people, unfortunately, who didn't follow the rules, have their child at home and then somebody died. They overdosed in the bathtub. It, 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 just because they're at home, they're no safer and they can go out and they sneak out and they do their things. And what happens is they actually get worse and worse over time. What we want to do is catch as early as possible and make the, 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 the line in the sand as, as clear. And as, as purposeful and, and, and useful as possible. We, we once had a, uh, with lots of stories, but one of the stories that I, that I like to tell is about parents that we were coaching on this and they wrote the letter and their daughter, the deadline for being at home with those day was 12 o'clock. And the first night the daughter said, okay, you know, fine. She comes home at 10 minutes. Second night, she's five minutes. And the third night, what does she do? She's, I'm just three minutes away. All right. And of course, the daughter comes late and the parents knew the rule. We rehearsed this and they locked the door. This is a daughter in the winter banging on the door. Let me in. It's terrible. I'm sure the parents did not sleep that well that night. Next morning, the daughter comes in yelling, angry. How could you do this to me? We rehearsed it. The mother said, we didn't do it to you. You did it to me. Eventually, the girl goes into recovery, married with kids now and doing really well. She said to her mother later, you know, when she was in recovery, those three minutes made the difference of the world. It looks like it's just three minutes. And of course, if you don't have the education, you say it's three minutes, let them in. But when you, when you let the, the child know we love you, but we're no longer willing to do this, we are following the rules. The child says, wow, things are changing. Randy, I wanted to ask you from your point of view, you started using when you were young. Did you hide your using from the people around you? I don't know, you from parents, from peers and so on and what were you called out on it by anyone what was your reaction to that etc from 14 years old to 18 years old i hid it from everybody i used with the same crowd hanging around with the same crowd as we got older your parents didn't know my parents didn't have a clue they have a clue as far as i know they didn't have a clue okay that's when they did find out about it they understood that now they have an explanation for some of my bizarre behaviors i i was i was I was angry. I was, I had a bad temper. I had a big mouth. I was physically abusive, not at home, but to my, my so-called friends, my, 
my co-students, people in my lives. Once I started driving, God forbid anybody put their turd signal on and, and turned into my lane in front of me. I thought nothing of pulling them out through the window. And, and well, we'll just leave it at that. And I was quite violent. I was quite angry. They knew there had to be a reason for it. And once they found out, I never did get removed from the house. I got married at 23. That's when I took my first prisoner. I I couldn't hide it, and I didn't hide it. I just kept going, and, and I believed in one word, and that was more. I wanted more, 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 more. Well, I couldn't get enough. I absolutely couldn't get enough. At the at the end of my addiction, which, like I said, was three and a half years ago, I was spending twelve hundred dollars a month just on marijuana. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of dope. And and you know what? There was times my son never had diapers, but I had beer and I had weed. Am I proud of that? Absolutely not. I'm thoroughly disgusted with it. But I'm dealing with I'm dealing with my demons, and and society's a safer place because I am. There used to be a long-standing attitude and perception in Jewish communities that only Gentiles are drunkards, that the demons of drink had largely passed Jews by, especially those in religious households. Those mythologies are long past, as we find that every corner of the modern world is dealing with a fallout from addiction, with Jews being no exception. Unlike, say, Islam, Judaism has never shied away from alcohol, especially in ritual matters like Shabbat Kiddush, or celebrations like weddings, and on certain holidays, such as Purim and Passover. But as we lean back at our seders and try to finish those four cups of wine, it's worth recalling that there can be a relatively thin line between joyous imbibing and out-of-control drinking. And for addicts, that's a line they can never cross again, or even approach, if they wish to remain in recovery, a process that is daily and forever. I'm Elliot Malamud, and this has been Crossing the Sea. If you would like to check out previous episodes of this series, as well as other podcasts and online offerings, just subscribe to Living Jewishly at www.livingjewishly.org and check us out on Instagram and Facebook. Stay safe, and this Pesach, drink responsibly, and take good care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.